Hey, Enneagram friends. This is Abby, your IEA accredited Enneagram teacher and certified somatic experiencing practitioner. And today, this is the part two episode of our conversation with Sam E. Greenberg about sexuality and the Enneagram. And again, you're not going to want to miss this episode. So in this part two episode, we are going to explore some of the sexual hangups and habits of type six all the way through to type nine. And again, Sam's going to offer some practices. So not just increasing our awareness around some of these habits in our sexuality, um, but also offering some practices to alleviate some of these unhelpful habits that we might notice. At the end of our conversation, Sam also shares um, some of the typical patterns we can notice between each of the three instincts. So if you're dominant in self-preservation, in social, or in one-to-one, some of the habits that come up regardless of your number. And so if you listened through to your number and it didn't land or resonate as much, make sure that you catch the end of this conversation when she shares about the instincts, because that could be why. It could be just how your dominant instinct is interacting with your Enneagram type. And again, this is really helpful in starting the conversation about instincts for those of you um, that are not as familiar, or maybe you are and you're interested in learning more. Because at the end of February, I'm offering a virtual one hour workshop for couples regarding instincts and how that impacts your relationships. And I have a free instinct indicator that's linked in the show notes. So if you don't know your dominant instinct or your instinctual stacking, the dominant, middle, and um, your blind spot instinct, take that indicator and start that process of of learning more and, and having some more language for some of the things that show up in your experience. Okay, friends, here is the second part of my conversation with Sam, the sexuality researcher and Enneagram coach that I had the privilege of chatting with about sexuality and the Enneagram. Okay, well, how about our, our type sixes? What are some things that, that they should pay attention to and explore in their experience? Okay, so sixes are the sexual skeptic. Um, they want they see sex as sort of dependability, something to rely on. Um, they want to know what to expect. That's the big thing with sixes is they want to know what to expect. Um, so they want re- sex to be reliable and predictable um, and a feeling of safety and trust is going to precede desire. So, um, anything a partner does that makes the six feel like the partner's really committed to them and makes them feel safe is sort of like an aphrodisiac for sixes. Um, sixes often wait for the partner to initiate sex because sixes are quite afraid of rejection. Hmm. And um, interestingly, sixes can be amazing partners for people with like offbeat sexual interests or like unusual sexual interests Hmm. which is like almost a little bit counterintuitive but sixes are like tell me what's up tell me what to expect and then I'm good okay yeah so the like consent and let's explain what our rules are and our boundaries around things is is the as long as that part happens we're all in yeah so um interestingly you know if you're like looking for a not totally non-judgmental partner of your like offbeat fetish maybe look for a six um (laughs) but they um they see sexual intimacy as like a sign that the relationship is secure so it's all about security for them yeah so i'm assuming then you know you you kind of um 
added into the conversation about four is that sometimes what can happen is this string of, of um, single relationships. But I'm assuming then with type sixes that there tends to be more of a lasting commitment because it takes some time to build trust or, or is that maybe not true? Um, as far as I know, it is in the sense that sixes tend to stay in relationship all relationships, you know, for quite a long time because they're, you know, also the loyalist. Um, and sometimes even overstay, you know, in relationships they shouldn't be in because if it, if it feels secure and predictable, that's better to them than the unknown of maybe something better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think even just in, in workshops and individual coaching with sixes, the idea that um, it's just easy to stay past a relationship's expiration date and not realize it's expired. Um, and so again, that makes sense that that so shows up in, in sexual encounters and sexuality as well too. Yeah. So how about um, some practices for our sixes and things that they can slowly take on some baby steps, things to be mindful of and, and lessening this hold this type structure has on them? Okay, so this is more than a baby step, but um, <laughs> an initiate sex. So when you're in the mood, not when you're guessing, you know, about the partner being in the mood. Um, because, because the sexes are reluctant to initiate sexual contact for fear of rejection, this can lead to dry spells, sexual dry spells in relationship. Um, especially if the six is with a partner who also prefers the other person to initiate. So yeah, um, the six, if the partner seems even like the tiniest bit reluctant um, or non-sexy mood, the six is going to back off completely for probably a really long time. And when they do initiate sex, when they do take initiative and they do leadership, um, take a leadership role, they're usually surprised that the partner is super happy about it. Hmm. So there's that. And then ask your partner to kind of change up or vary your sexual routine without telling you in advance. Of course, this has to be <laughs> like a very trusted person. Um, this is where, you know, the pick stuff out of a hat can come in for sexes as well as ones. Because, yes, it's great that sexes are, can roll with anything if they are prepared. But, you know, try diving in the water instead of putting your toe in first. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So have a very trusted person, you know, you can pre-agree on the, on your limits of what they choose, but have them kind of vary things without telling you. And, um, and also try expressing your sexual needs and desires. Sexes have trouble with this as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even thinking about, um, what you talked about, uh, with initiating sex, just, it sounds so much like this, uh, belief in and trust of your inner knowing, you know, in in other spaces in life sixes, we often see this second guessing or self-doubting or knowing what you want, but kind of, um, waiting for others to support that idea. And with that bravery that it takes to initiate sex, just, there being this, you know, I know that I'm interested right now and I'm going to step forward with confidence and um, faith that, that I can be held and supported in this knowing um, with my partner. So that sounds beautiful. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So how about our, our sevens? What can they observe and pay attention to in that type seven structure? Okay. So type sevens, 
is the sexual explorer or the sexual adventurer. For them, you could imagine sex is all about new experiences, exploration, fun. Um, they're super enthusiastic partners. They'll normally try anything once um, to kind of just get a variety of experiences, whether they're really, really personally interested in it or not. Um, Sevens definitely become bored with sexual routine, much like we talked about with fours. Um, after a while of one sexual partner, sevens can, you know, question whether that's the person for them because they just start to feel bored. Mm. Um, they're super positive and they like really enjoy sex to the fullest and they can help their partner enjoy sex to the fullest too. They're, they're usually unabashed, you know, not shy, like really fun and positive and upbeat sexual partners. Um, however, the vulnerability of sexual intimacy can take sevens deeper than they want to go. Mm-mm. So like their repressed sadness and other negative emotions might get stirred up by sex. Um, and they could like find themselves sobbing after a sexual encounter without even knowing why. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, even as you talk about like, these uh aspects again you're gonna hear the the pieces of that that are a real gift and and the pieces that can be really challenging um but even just thinking about there being a sense of um positivity and playfulness and optimism in that sexual encounter and how much that can really be a gift for for certain types but honestly just people that are having any kind of hindrance into that space, whether that is body image or previous sexual encounters where you didn't feel safe and supported or whatever it might be. Um, what a tremendous gift that can be in, in bringing that um, lighthearted space. And then also the inverse being, um, you know, sevens can come into that space and there's this whole well of um, tender emotion underneath that, that, you know, that sexual experience is tapping into. And so um, it's amazing even just hearing the gift that they can bring. And then also it's not even a negative impact, right? Because you need that, you need that in touch um, aspect, but but of the impact it can have on them reciprocally in a different, very, very different way than what they're offering to their partner. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. So how about some practices for our, our type sevens, things that they can pay attention to, they can try on, they can explore in their sexuality. Okay. So sevens, we know you love variety, (laughs) Um, but again, like four, there's quite a bit of, um, of parallel with the four, although there's a little bit of difference. Mundanity is a part of life and it's like an important part of life. So Um, When you engage in everyday experiences that are mundane, like the dishes, laundry, et cetera, like challenge yourself to stay present in your body and combat the tendency to escape to more exciting places in your mind. Mm. And then you'll be able to bring that same focus to sex if you find yourself getting bored. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds almost like the, um, you know, we talk about sobriety as this virtue in the type seven structure, you know, that sobriety is really tied to not having to have variety, not having to 
you know, skim across the buffet of life, but being able to just sink into something more deeply and, and that be okay. Um, yeah. And um, it sounds like so much of that in, in this practice that you're offering of, you know, paying attention to the mundane things, allowing yourself to be there rather than escaping into that anticipation and um, the imagination for what's next. And um, yes, absolutely. I love skim across the buffet of life. That's a great image. <laughs> um, so I'd also say if sadness or other emotions arise during or after sex, like definitely do not run away from it. That's what you're going to want to do. Um, but accept them. I mean, like that's a great opportunity and be with them, sit with them, you know, especially if you're with a trusted partner, have the partner be with you and witness your emotions too. just stay with your feelings. And in general, whether you have emotions coming up or not, um, like embrace the afterglow of sex, like Mm. don't jump up and race on to the next fun thing just remain in the connection and the sort of like more languishing pace for as long as possible and see what that brings up for you yeah I I love both of those pieces um yeah and I think even you know in those moments when uh, there are tender emotions arising whether you know that's sadness or you're unexpectedly anxious or nervous um you know outside of the sexual encounter space one of the things that comes up up often in coaching, um, it's just giving some language to your emotions. And if, if that mm. feels impossible, you know, feelings wheels, those feeling charts are great for that. Giving Love yourself those. some more vocabulary. Um, and also just, you know, even if that, if you just feel like, okay, what I feel like is bad and you can't give more of an emotion, um, more of a label to it, just trying to acknowledge what it feels like in your felt experience, you know, is there, um, you know, heaviness on your chest? Is there knots in your stomach? Because sometimes even just breathing through that sensation can help um, give some more awareness of what's going on, but also to to honor and process that emotion so that it doesn't get just shoved down with positivity or or whatever next activity you go on to. So that that's a really good um, it's a really good practice that you're offering. Yeah. So how about our, our type eights? What are things that, that we can notice in that type structure or, or things that are more observable for our eights? Okay. So eights are like the sexual energy master. Um, so they desire super high intensity sexual partnerships. Um, for eights, they really enjoy the rawness of sexual energy itself and the passion they feel, you know, with the sexual energy moving through the body. Um, so they can be, you know, the stereotype would be lustful, quite, they're quite raw um, with their sexuality. And um, you could say like closer to being like um, an animal sexuality. It's probably most in touch with that. They're often quite avoidant of vulnerability, like the seven, Um And, you know, type eights are intense people in general. So this extends to their sexual lives. Um, They want their sexual energy to be matched or maybe even contained by someone else. Eights, like they come on really strong and this usually works for them. So others are taken aback by eights' confidence and bravado and like other people may find this a turn on. So eights usually have a pretty easy time finding sexual partners, um, depending on subtype, which I think we'll talk about subtype a little bit too. 
Um, and AIDS can spend like a lifetime having physically fulfilling sex without touching on the subtle vulnerable levels that sexuality can give us access to. Yeah. Okay. So the, the lust for life, the intensity for the, you know, that forward momentum shows up in the, that, um, sexual encounter too, just like the other ones. Yes. (laughs) So, um, so how about some, some things that they can pay attention to, they can observe some practices that they can take on just to be cognizant of, you know, that energetic exchange or intensity, um, maybe even some of the, um, you know, these moments when that exchange is is one-sided or it's not reciprocated just what are the practices that that feel helpful for our type eights you got it yeah you hit the nail on the head with um the reciprocation and uh so remember eights that sex is about the energy of the couple or the whole not just about the effect that you're creating um So you want to give as much energy to the sexual moment as can be received by the partner, but no more, you know, Um, because it's, it's what you're creating together. You know, the, the resonance you're creating together. It's not the resonance that you, the eight are creating in the experience alone. Hmm. Um, And then I'd say, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's seeking sexual partners, like, it's great to seek out partners who are equally intense as you and who can match your intensity and nothing wrong with that at all. But also try seeking out partners who are complement to you, um, you know, who are more subtle, more quiet, more kind of like yin to your yang kind of thing um, and see how that is, you know, give that a try and see if that creates some more balance in the, in the whole yeah, And then um, I'd also say cultivate your appreciation for subtlety in life and in sex. You know, challenge yourself to tune into the quiet moments, the subtle moments, um, the minute sensations and touches that you often overlook because it's not all about the fireworks. Yeah, for sure. When I think even, um, you know, that that sense of the, the subtlety um, – you know, I think there's so many pieces that can go into that, whether that is um, like different pieces of the sexual encounter, but also the before and after, you know, some of, of what you even shared for the type seven of like staying in the afterglow. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I think that can be just as much as that, that subtlety piece. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. Okay. How about our, our type nines? What are some things that, that we can observe and, and notice and pay attention to in that type nine structure? Okay, so nines I call the sexual priest or priestess. And this is because nines are the most unitive type. Um, And as such, they have access to like fully merged sexual consciousness to which other types often only can aspire, you know? So that's probably the superpower of the nine, um, the sexual superpower. But nines have diffuse sexual energy and a big tendency to merge. Um, as you can imagine, they can easily lose touch with their own desires much more than any other type. So yes, like twos, you know, threes, but sixes, but nines really, they often don't know at all, you know, what they like, 
who even who they are, much less what they want sexually. So um they yeah, so sexually they get merged, they have like a big communion with the partner. Um they can also be prone to inertia in both romantic relationships and their sexual life, whether that inertia is like they're unpartnered or they're partnered, they can just keep doing the same thing for a long time because that's what they're already doing. Hmm. Um, and then merging, like merging is natural for them, whereas establishing a, sa- a stable separate self is more difficult. Um, mm. So communicating and verbalizing their desires is going to be extremely difficult or impossible for nines. Um, and it's, of course, challenging to know them as well as to say them. Yeah. Do you think that the... Um that aspect of, you know, knowing yourself as a separate, uh, separate being not merged with other, do you think that is evident to the partner in those interactions that, you know, sometimes when we talk about this aspect of merging in other spaces, not in sexuality, but in other spaces, one of the things that often comes up with couples is that nines are, you know, as they become more aware of this, they become more awake and less uh, asleep to the tendency they begin to realize that their partner has actually known they were sleepwalking all along because they could feel it when they woke up again. You know, this sense mm. of like, oh, I didn't realize how much, you know, you had become almost like a ghost. Like I couldn't quite grasp and grab you. But now that you are becoming more embodied and actually like standing on your own two feet with preferences and wants and desires and dreams, now I realize I can fully embrace you. I just didn't know it until you woke up. Um, and I wonder if that shows up in the in that sexuality space too. Um, yes. So this one is really difficult and like, even in my personal life and working with clients, it's like really hard to, to figure out how to address this with a nine. So I think often a partner doesn't know if the nine has always been like that as long as they've known them. Okay. Because what it ends up feeling like to the other person is that the nine is just totally on the same page as them all the time yeah yeah and they're like this is great we're on the same page so there can be this assumption that like the nine hasn't has not merged with them the nine is just very similar to them and that's very easy for them so we all have that experience with our nines of you know feeling very at ease around them but it can also be as you said if the nine wasn't always in that kind of a sleeping walking space and they become into it then it's quite easy to tell or if they have been and they wake up it's quite easy to tell so I think it just depends yeah yeah for sure for sure so what are some aspects that our our type nine friends can observe in themselves and and practices they can take on to kind of um, wake up a little bit and, and loosen this type nine structure hold on them yes so Listen to your body um, because it's really difficult to know your own desires, but your body does know. Um, So as much as you can tune into your bodily instincts and then let your body feelings dictate what you communicate, um, what you know are your own desires and what you communicate, that's good. Um, Be aware of merging into your partner's ego structure, right? Like sexual merging is great. If both partners are merging into the the couple or the the whole, hmm. um, 
but if only you are merging and only you are dissolving, then we're going to, you're going to have an issue where you're just taking on the egoic state of your partner as your own. And that's probably long-term, not great. It's not going to lead to you having like a fulfilling sexual life. Um, So be aware of that. And then definitely for nines, maintain a solo sexual practice. And I say like, and or ecosexual because nines are often kind of ecosexual, meaning that they feel uh, sexual energy from nature. Hmm. So especially if you live with people, you know, live with your partner, get some space, get in nature and just breathe deep and connect with the natural world. That's going to reset you in general, but also sexually um, allow that to support your kind of flow of sexual energy. And um doing these kinds of things regularly or to reset yourself away from other people's energy is going to help you come home to yourself and then tune into your body. As I said, the first thing to do is to tune into your body, but you may need to get yourself alone quite often before you're able to do that. Yeah. You know, that first piece that you had offered about having some awareness around when you are merging with your partner, not, not in the way that we want to in sexuality, but this, um, your partner's wants, desires, their preferences only without it being reciprocal. Um, and my, my assumption working with nines on other areas of life is that that is probably most observed after that moment. You know, it's really hard to be in tune with some of those pieces in the moment, but after that moment, when you observe, um, the subtle resistance or what I often call the silent stubbornness that can show Mm -hmm. type nines. Um, Mm -hmm. and rather than, you know, judging yourself or shaming yourself when you observe that or just continue to be silently stubborn in it to be curious about like why why am I putting my foot down about this like why is this the hill I'm dying on why am I resisting this why am I avoiding them or this moment or this situation um, and let that be kind of this invitation to be curious of what's going on. Is there a need that I have that's not getting met? Is there a desire, a preference, a want? Um, and if there is, what is it? How do I explain that? How do I articulate that to my partner? Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting to think about. Yep. For all of the types, um, I'm sure as people are listening to our conversation, there are some people that, you know, heard your explanation and thought, oh my goodness, that's exactly my partner. But then maybe when they heard theirs, it didn't feel like it landed as much. And my assumption is that probably has something to do with subtypes, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in the same way that for for any other characteristic, you know, people read things about their type structure and they don't really resonate with it. Oftentimes, whether they're a counter type or there's just something about their subtype, um, when they lay that instinct over top of their Enneagram type, just doesn't land in the same way. It's not that they're unaware or they're oblivious to this aspect of their personality. It just isn't true for them in the same way because something is going on with their subtype. So I, I want to, you know, for just a little bit of time, just kind of explore some of the um, the tendencies that can show up in these subtypes because you had just posted about it. And I think it was so helpful, especially for people um, that feel like, oh, okay, that didn't quite fit or maybe it didn't feel like it it uh, resonated as much as I thought it would um, because my guess is that there's probably something about their subtype that is um, constricting that or, or um, making it feel a little bit different in their experience. 
Yes. Okay. So I have as much time. So I'll, I'll like use myself as an example here. Um, so I'm a sexual subtype five and, um, for five sexual is the counter type. So sexual fives can look a lot more like fours, um, or even eights. Like they don't exactly fit this sort of librarian like stereotype, um, that the other subtypes of five do. And then you have like the self-preservation five that's extremely fits the stereotypes of five. So um, Abby's correct that the subtype uh, is sort of mitigating some aspects of your type can be why you might not exactly see yourself in all of the description. Um, So really briefly, um, you know, there's the self-preservation subtype, social subtype, sexual subtype, or one-to-one subtype. Um, So for people with a dominant subtype of sexual or one-to-one in terms of sexuality these people are passionate and intense um they tend to like have no problem attracting sexual partners because they have just like this overt sexuality and more of um like a sexual vibe to them (laughs) they have um you know, like kind of a lower tolerance for going without sex. So I say they have a low tolerance for sexual dry spells compared to the other two subtypes. Um, And this is more like the kind of like, look at me, you know, um, vibe. So that's how they are in their sexuality. They, um, they're often just more interested in sex than the people of the other subtypes. Um, Not necessarily higher desire, but just more interested in, in, consummating their desire if you will (laughs) and um they um they have more of a sexual presence like i said they have a really strong sense of who they're attracted to that other people are attracted to them um, and they're often more idealizing of sex and partners than the other subtypes okay yeah that's that's so interesting and i think for some types as you have shared about the sexual five that it creates these counterintuitive aspects. But then also for other types, um, it probably exasperates the type. Like there's a sense of it double downs on the type of, oh, now I'm a seven and I'm a sexual seven. So then this is even more heightened. Um, And so it goes both ways of of creating these counter tendencies, but then also, um, you know, really heightening some of the natural type structure tendencies too. You got it. So I'll use eight as an example. Um, and you're right about seven. The sexual eight is like the most 80 of the eights. <laughs> and like their sexual energy almost feels like it's, it's bowling you over. Um, whereas there's like self-pres eight and the social eight are a little bit more subdued. Not very subdued because they're still eights, but a little bit more energetically subdued. The sexual eight is going to be like, so out there and, and intense. Um, so you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Okay. What about our other our other two instincts? So the social um, instinct is, you know, the people who are so tuned into navigating the social environment. These people are quite socially aware when they're flirting or dating or looking for partners. Um, so they, they also tend to have an easy time, you know, like meeting people, meeting partners, but social um, instincts have an easier time because they're like navigating the social milieu well, mm. whereas the sexual subtype has an easy time because like people just flock to them like a magnet. <laughs> um, 
so people with a dominant social, um, they have great social skills. Like I said, they use that for flirting and finding sexual partners. It's, um, they're great at reading the reactions of, of other people, of partners. So sex with, in a, for a social tends to be a lot of give and take, a lot of communication. They actually kind of see sex as a form of communication. Hmm as well as a, a form of bonding. Um, socials can be um, often thinking of sex in terms of it's like broad meaning for the relationship and for people at large and for society rather than what it means to them personally. Oh yeah. Still part of the group in the me- in that mindset. Yeah. And so like the group, if they're partnered, it may be the dyad, the group of two. They're really aware of what sex means for their group of two, but they're, they're less um, individualistic about sex as the sexuals is more individualistic. And lastly, I'd say socials are, they're good at um, starting relationships and sort of doing relationship maintenance, but they may not be as adept at like pushing the sexual relationship to a deeper, more intimate place. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I, um, even the, one of the initial characteristics you talked about of like being able to, because of, of that heightened, um, being able to read, you know, the, the person, the room, the situation, and even just being able to navigate social dynamics, um, social is, is my blind spot. It's at the bottom of my instinctual stack. <laughs> and I always joke with my husband that had I not met him in college through a mutual friend that just like, you know, he essentially fell into my lap. Um, I don't know that I would have ever figured it out because the idea of having to like navigate like online dating or like whatever, you know, how, how people find someone outside of college, like I wouldn't have done it. Like I just couldn't have, I don't have enough like social intelligence to figure that out. So I love that that is, that is one of the strong suits that that, that instinct brings into it. Yeah. And I don't know what your dominant one is, but that's something that self-preservation people say very often. Yep. So <laughs> self-preservation is my dominant. So that's a good segue <laughs> into our, our last instinct. So tell us about self-preservation. Okay. Great story. That was a perfect. Um, so yeah, self-preses are just like not so about um, navigating relationships in the social milieu. So they do have the hardest time finding partners, sexual partners and life partners. Um, People with dominant self-pres instinct are, they're concerned with staying safe and their biological and material needs being met. So they often are less assertive than the other two, um, energetically assertive. You know, they can be assertive in terms of their speech, but they have a, this feel to them of being a little bit less energetically assertive. Um, our SPs are less likely to idealize romance and sexual partners. Their um, basic needs are more important than sex to them. So they're not going to be probably down to get down if they are thirsty, <laughs> hungry, tired, like, you know, those things take precedent, um, precedence. So sex is more about physicality and physical gratification for um, self-preds. And they tend not to be as bothered by sexual routine or sexual dry spells. Um, This is not to say that their desire is lower. So desire can actually be the same across all three, but it's more about how you feel it and express it and experience it. 
Um, even if their desire is high, an SP may not want to like expend energy on sex, depending if there's other basic needs that they need to meet first. Um, and when partnered, SPs are usually happier, you know, without as many jealousy issues or like wandering eyes. You got to watch those sexuals and their wandering eyes. <laughs> um, and SPs, you know, they probably are happy to try more adventurous things if the partner leads it. But, um, you know, SPs are about their, their cozy environment, their kind of slightly more predictable environment. So um, they will try things, but they might not initiate trying lots of different things. Yeah. Okay. Yes to all those things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, which is, as I, um, you know, you shared about the uh, type eight, not as much of that resonated. And a lot of it has to do with uh, one, my subtype, right? Self-preservation, all of that of what you just said resonated from my experience. But but part of what happens for me, just kind of as a caveat, you know, sexuality and other eights might feel this way, kind of falls into that vulnerability range. And so my typical type eight tendencies don't show up as much there with intensity and full speed ahead in the way that I might in a work environment or in a, you know, leading a volunteer or whatever, um, because it falls into that vulnerability range. And so it becomes the like fish out of water. And then you lay that that self-pres over top of it. Um, and that is like a, a perfect diagnostic <laughs> of what I experienced. So I appreciate you going through the subtypes too, even if it was just briefly. Yes. And we can always revisit it on, on another episode, but it is really important for understanding this Enneagram and sexuality. Yeah, for sure. And just, I mean, it's, it's always another layer, you know, I think as we hear different information about our, our type structure to just always hold it with curiosity and rather than, oh, I must not be that type or, and now I have this Ennea crisis or, or that's <laughs> not me. Um, but instead just holding it with some curiosity of, of why does that not land as much for me and, and what, what might be showing up for me and, and how do other people experience that in, in our partnership or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. So thank you for for briefly going through this. I know that it's like a whole world we could have spent a really long conversation right. on. So, um, so Sam, thank you so much for for teaching us today. I mean, I feel like I got to sit in the like front row seats of of this teaching, um, and I know that this will be so so valuable both for people understanding themselves and, and giving some more language to their experience, um, but then also having a more of an understanding and a compassionate perspective at times with their partner. Um, so thank you so much for, for offering all of this to us as a gift. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, and Sam, I would love for people to know, um, what are some of the things that are coming up for you that they can connect with, um, in your work? And, and I will put in the show notes, like your contact information and some of those pieces, but, but what are some things that are up in your work that they can connect to and, and how can people, um, connect with you moving forward? Okay, perfect. Um, so I'm an Enneagram coach focused on sex and intimate relationships and um, taking clients if people are interested in that. Um, definitely follow me on Instagram right now is where I post most of my content. And that's at Enneagasm, E-N-N-E-A underscore G-A-S-M. Um, I do lots and lots of free videos, free posts there. And um What's coming up for me is the results of my large um, Enneagram study on sexuality are coming out 
soon and I'm going to release those bit by bit um, on my Instagram page. And then I'm also going to be at the International Enneagram Conference in Stockholm in May, if anyone's going to that, talking about the Enneagram and ecstatic so many good things coming up. And also I'll put again, all this information in the show notes to people as they have all of the questions that arose from this episode or they're like, okay, what else do I do? How do I work on this? Um, you guys can reach out to Sam and, and schedule time to talk specifically about your context because we won't be able to answer um, all the questions. She won't be able to share all the information that she has and knows about this. Um, and so schedule time to, to connect with her and, and make sure that you have some support in that area because it matters. Perfect. Thank you so much, Abby. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Sam.